0: okay ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the dana buckler show my name is dana and i am as pleased as i can be to welcome back the gentleman that has contributed more to this podcast in the past eight years than anyone else and that is that is writer director film historian jim Hempel. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, man. Thanks for doing this. And and this is another one of our episodes in the reoccurring series, Icons, where we look at the filmographies of iconic actors, directors, producers, filmmakers. And you know, Jim and I have always sort of, we sort of kick ideas back and forth to each other. And the subject of today's episode is, is one that we have been talking about for quite some time, and that is going to be the films of Michael Mann. And to look at his filmography, which we're going to go through point by point, it's interesting because he's done 11 films in 40 years. And and you think about the great directors and, you know, with the exception of maybe James Cameron and Tarantino, most of the other big names have done a lot more projects than that. So and we'll get into that. But, Jim, uh, I want to start this episode off by asking you the question I ask every time. And that is What does the filmmaker Michael Mann mean to you?
1: Well, to me, Michael Mann is one of the great philosophers of American action cinema, and I guess American cinema in general. I mean, more than most big studio Hollywood directors and people making movies in this genre, you know, he's really a director who's kind of concerned with these existential questions of of sort of what our purpose in life is, you know, is the purpose work is it love? Uh, what's the purpose when those two things contradict each other or get in each other's way? I mean that's sort of a big premise behind heat obviously um, And going back to his first TV movie The Jericho Mile, uh, he's just always been sort of concerned with these these men, mostly men, occasionally women, who, have sort of figured out that the way to live their lives is by adhering to some kind of for lack of a, of a better word, code. And the movies are always kind of about what happens when these codes bump up against other people who don't live by the same codes and that, and when they bump up against the unexpected, you know when when you've planned your life according to a certain uh, to certain expectations that the world and circumstances thwart and you know man explores all these ideas to me in really really interesting ways both on the page and as a director i mean the the, the dual pronged importance of man is that he's both a really really interesting philosophical thinker and writer and he's one of the cinema's great technical innovators i mean you know man is always to me a little bit ahead of his time um you know it's and it's interesting cuz really you know Last of the Mohicans is the only movie he ever made I think that was you could really say was like a big big blockbuster hit in terms in relation to its cost. I mean Heat was a hit too, but Heat cost so damn much money. I don't know that it was necessarily considered, you know, big big profit machine at the time. But Last of the Mohicans was his only his only really big hit and I don't think that's a coincidence that it's his one sort of traditional period piece because I think a lot of his other movies he tends to be a little bit ahead of the audience both in terms of his content we can get into that a little bit later talking about black hat but but also just with the way he shoots because it's interesting you know preparing knowing i was going to talk to you uh i rewatched a lot of man's movies this week and it was fascinating how certain movies that at the time they came out looked so strange to me like collateral and miami vice um now looks completely normal. I, I was like what was i thinking like when i watched this why did i think this was weird and i think it's because the the re- you know, he's so influential and he's so ahead of his time that the rest of the world is caught up. And so something that he did with, you know, his, you know, his collateral was one of the first major studio movies that was uh, shot digitally. And, um, you know, now, of course, virtually everything is. So the, the look of collateral is not, it does not seem as jarring. Um, but anyway, so getting back around to your original question, I just think he's, I think he's a, he's a great innovator. B, he's a great thinker. And See, he's one of the great action or I'm not, not action. one of the great actors, directors in American movies. I mean, this is a guy who uh, I think, you know, I, I think who I think appreciates actors and what they can do more than almost any other director outside of, you know, a few of the other major ones like Tarantino or Scorsese um, or Ridley Scott because uh, that's another thing when you revisit his movies, it's amazing how deep the bench of actors is in these things. When you watch them and you realize some of the, you know, it's like you watch collateral and it's like you know Jason Statham's practically an extra in it. I mean that's how deep the the bench of actors is in that movie. But I don't know, I mean, that's just all kind of scratching the surface, but we you know, as we get into some of the individual films, um, I'll talk a little about a little bit more. But you know, your point about him making, relatively few movies i mean it's true he is sort of more like a kubrick or something and i think that's you know that's something that i've really you know my whole view of that has changed a lot since i was younger i mean when i was in film school i always was uh just kind of i I, I was always impatient and almost angry with guys like kubrick or albert brooks who were only making a movie every five years or something like that and, you know, now having made a couple movies myself that are nowhere near on the level of the movies those guys make, and knowing how difficult it is, and sometimes just how many false starts there are, and how many things you try to get going that don't get going and all that kind of stuff, you know, you you realize how much of it is just depended on fate and chance, whether you get to make as many movies as you want to in the first place. I'm sure Michael Mann probably would like to have made more movies than he has. And I do think part of it, the issue too, there's, there's two things with him. One is he is such an immersive, thorough filmmaker. I mean, he's so detail oriented. And so I think it takes longer to make movies that way. I mean, he wrote the script for heat in 1979 and the movie came out in 95, you know? And so there's, there's that, but also I think, you know, you have to remember that again, Michael Mann is not, a he, he's not a commercially successful director the way that like Tarantino is or Spielberg is or or even even Scorsese has you know every few years he'll hit big with something and man outside of a few of them that doesn't happen very often and it certainly didn't happen early in his career and in fact like to really come to really come back hard as a feature director with Last of the Mohicans you know he had to spend a lot of years Sort of burnishing his his reputation in television.
0: Let's get into the the theatrically released films of Man, because, like you said, he, he he did work before this, but we're going to focus on these eleven films that that he uh, he released theatrically. And of course, the first one is 1981's Thief, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Now, I'm just going to ask: This is is this before the Bruckheimer since Simpson relationship came together, as far as you know, or?
1: I, I think so. I think this was in the period because I think Bruckheimer also the sa- the year before. I think he produced. Uh, American Gigolo, I think, also without Simpson. I mean, he may have been, the thing, it gets a little fuzzy because of the way these guys would sort of jump in and out of jobs. And, like, Simpson had been, Simpson had been, like, a executive at Paramount, I think, before him and Bruckheimer partnered up. And, the, like, American Gigolo was at Paramount, so he may have, Bruckheimer may have been working with Simpson on a couple of things, but not on Thief, because that was a whole separate thing. So it was definitely before, the Simpson Bruckheimer juggernaut that we think of from Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop and stuff like that. It was uh, it was definitely before that uh, iteration of the partnership began.
0: Tell me your thoughts on Thief.
1: Uh, Well, you know, one of the great first films ever. I mean, it's up there with Body Heat or Hard Times or Citizen Kane or Reservoir Dogs or, you know, you name it. In the sense that it's one of those movies, one of those you know, first film where you can see a lot of the director's preoccupations already pretty fully worked out and fully formed. And again, part of that is because he had been kicking around TV for a while in the seventies, writing for things like Starsky and Hutch in Mm -hmm. Vegas. And he had done that movie. I mentioned the Jericho mile, which if people haven't seen it, I would really recommend. I mean, it's, you know, it's a TV movie that is a, full michael Mann experience i mean it is not just like him it it doesn't feel it's definitely got a lot of his um strengths and thief you know just i think it again a lot of the stuff that makes man great is there right from the beginning you know the attention to anthropological detail i mean this is a movie that you know james con to play this part you know trained with actual thieves and learned how to really break into a safe i mean he by the end of this movie he actually could have could have been a a safe cracker if he wanted to change careers and that's kind of michael mann's modus operandi with um with actors and and you know it's again it's like i think you see in thief this sense of real just deep authenticity linked with that kind of those kinds of philosophical questions i was talking about i mean the whole movie is kind of about how james you know, like a real obsession of, of Michael Mann's, he, he's as obsessed with time as Christopher Nolan is. I mean, like it comes up again and again in his movies is this question of time and what you do with your time and and characters running out of time. And that's kind of like what the James Conn character is in Thief, because he has, uh, you know, he spent. 50, I don't remember what the exact amount is, but something like 15 years of his young life in, in prison. So, you know, he gets out and there's like this hilarious courtship he has with Tuesday Weld where he's rushing her through the initial stages of dating to get right to marriage because it's like he doesn't have the time. And, um, and, and there's an interesting thing that he does, Khan does with his performance in that movie. And I don't know if this was in man's script initially or if this is just the way Khan chose to play it. But there's an interesting thing he does where he, even though he's running low on time, he talks slowly and carefully. Like he never uses contractions in the movie. Everything James Caan says is you are this, not your, this, you know, it's like, you are this to me. And, and it's sort of this way of getting people to pay attention because he doesn't want to have to speak twice. And it comes up, my guess is it was man's idea because it comes up again in Miami vice. Colin Farrell does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, thief, it's just in terms of that kind of character and philosophy driven action. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a fantastic movie. And again, like very influential movie. I mean, the use of the Tangerine Dream score, that wasn't a common, the synthesizer score with that kind of movie was not a common thing at that point. Um, and so that I think was, was very influential. And, you know, also just having, coming from Chicago, just fantastic use of Chicago locations and, and things. I mean, it's one of, the, it's probably one of the movies that when I watch it, most reminds me of home of, of any of the however many hundreds of movies I've seen shot in Chicago
0: the numbers that I've got on take the numbers that uh, I present to you with a grain of salt because of course I'm getting them off of the internet and these are not <laughs> hard facts but according to what I was able to research it was made for a, a five point five million dollar budget took in eleven point five in the box office so uh doubled its budget uh, would that be considered for the 1980s a modest success a small success or just a I'm wondering you know, were were people clamoring to 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 get him to make another film right after this, after the response box
1: office wise? Well, you know, it's funny. He he, they were they were, but only in that genre. Like from what I understand, man was basically besieged by offers to do more crime movies that were exactly like Thief. It was basically like he got they, they you know everybody who had a Thief movie wanted him to do a movie about a thief. And he didn't really, you know, he had just made that movie. So, um, which is why his, he, you know, followed it up with The Keep, which is a very, very different film. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm actually a little bit surprised to hear that Thief did double its budget because I know it was very, I know it was very critically well-received, but I always thought of it at the time as sort of a, as sort of a cult film. But I do know, I do know that he was, you know, I do know people in the industry took notice of it and of man, you know, man's talent was very, very obvious. And I think, uh, you know, it was obvious that with Khan, he had gotten like the best performance Khan had given in years. And so he was, he was in demand, but in the typical fashion, it was only for, within a very restrictive, narrow uh, range that man at that, at that moment was not interested in going back to again, which is why he followed it up with the keep.
0: Well, that's a good way to segue into the keep uh, a 1983 horror film. Uh Like you said, uh, completely opposite of the thief. Uh, it starred, Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne. What I, from what I understand, this was to say it was a trouble production would be put it mildly. My research that I did, th- that man turned in a 210 minute cut of the film and then was told to cut it down to two hours. And the whole thing was just a mess. And uh, the budget is listed as six million. It took in 3.6. So this was not a financially successful film. But I'd be, I, I mean, I have to know your thoughts on the keep. I recently watched it for the first time uh, about a month mm-hmm. ago, knowing that I was hoping to to do this conversation. But your thoughts on the keep?
1: Uh, I'm a huge fan of it, and, and I'm curious to know how you watched it because the because uh, that can make a big difference in terms of how you uh, how you uh, sort of take in that movie. Um, you know, was it did you see? Did you have like a widescreen? DVD in the proper aspect ratio, or were you watching it on YouTube, or how did you see it?
0: Uh, I I guess just to say I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> I, <okay. laughs>
1: I, had a, I had a feeling because that movie is only the only decent copy I've been able to find of it is an Australian import DVD, which I own, and which is what I would recommend to anyone who's a, a man enthusiast. You know, it's it's and, and I actually didn't even know this. It's a relatively new DVD. It, it, I didn't even know it existed until a couple months ago. Um, but to keep the, 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 the copies of it that exist other than that, and I don't know why, I'm not sure why in this country it's never been properly released other than just a total lack of demand, but, um, they, they, they really don't do it justice because it's actually quite a, uh, a beautifully made and beautifully photographed movie that, which you can't really tell in the compromised versions, but, but I'm actually a big fan of it. I mean, I think it's a very, uh, you know, it's, it's this kind of Nazis versus supernatural monster movie where the supernatural monster is kind of feeding off of the fascist impulses of the nazis and and the whole movie has like a very very interesting kind of the whole production design is really really fascinating of the the keep where the whole thing takes place and it's you know a parade of great actors like the ones you were mentioning and then ian mckellen and jürgen Prochnow, and and i think it's got some pretty like genuinely disturbing and frightening imagery and again great synthesizer score um and again if you can see it properly beautifully photographed but it's it's always been a tough one to come by i'm a much bigger fan of it i think than anyone including man himself i mean i think part of the problem with the movie in terms of all those production issues you were talking about is for whatever reason they went into shooting without feeling like the script was really locked down and man said it was the only time he ever did that where they went to shooting and he, he didn't really feel like the script was ready and that may be why they shot too much and the movie ended up being too long and it was hard to find a shape but you know i pr- if i didn't know any of that stuff watching the movie um i would say it's a pretty solid pretty solid supernatural thriller that still for me like really delivers the goods i mean it's uh you know, it's it's nothing nothing for him to be ashamed of, in my opinion, although I know it's not one that he's that fond of. And like I say, uh, at, based on the box office figures you quoted, uh, not too many other people were either.
0: And it's interesting because, you know, I, I mentioned that the studio had requested a, yes. you know, two hour version. He turned in a one hour and 35 minute version. Well, at least mm-hmm. that's the version that I saw. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and knowing and, and knowing that. He had turned in a 210 minute cut, knowing that going into an hour and 35 minute version, I, I guess that was that was what's the bar was set low for me because I felt like mm-hmm. I'm not actually seeing the movie that I was meant to see, and that that was always playing in the back of my mind.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, again, I I, I get what you're saying. I personally, when I watch it, I don't think about any of that stuff, and I I like its brevity. I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, as someone who is not a fan of the bloat of most big fantasy films and and all that kind of stuff, and, and like I, I've always kind of had a, like a soft spot for epic supernatural movies like The Keep and Legend that are like an hour and forty minutes. Um, there's something kind of appealing about that to me. You know, I would, I would, I would much rather watch The Keep or Legend any day of the week than any Lord of the Rings movie.
0: I know we said we were going to stick to the filmography. But it's important that we talk about one TV show because this this subject will come up a little later on in this conversation. And I am admittedly a little too young to remember the impact that Miami Vice had. He is credited as executive producer and a writer on mm-hmm. on he wrote one episode, but he's credited as an executive producer. I'm wondering how he even got involved in Miami Vice, which. Before you even answer that question, can you speak to just how ridiculously popular that show was in the 1980s?
1: Insane. Nothing. Nothing today compares. N- not Marvel movies. I'm telling you, it was. It was in terms of cultural impact and people talking about it, an influence. Maybe. It's, maybe that's not true. Maybe Marvel movies, but but not much else. I mean, it was. It was enormous, and it's impossible now. I think to get across just what it felt like when that show premiered, because, you know, you got to remember TV in those days. I mean, it sucked. I mean, TV was just in the early eighties was so bad. And, you know, the, the, this show had the cinematic style of the show and the use of music. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, it just like that pilot episode when, when that aired, because I, w- I am old enough to have watched it the first time it aired. And you, even even though I wasn't old enough to necessarily understand all the filmmaking behind it um, and understand why it was having the effect on me that it did, I knew I was watching something different and something game-changing. And, you know, there was – and I think it's because, you know, you had like, the sort of – the external – kind of cultural, um, impact it had in terms of just on clothes and stuff like that. I mean, everybody started dressing like Don Johnson, which was very strange, uh, with these like, you know, turquoise shirts and suit jackets and stuff. But aside from that, I mean, I think what really, what that show brought to television, um, and, and this is all Michael Mann, you know, Michael Mann, him being credited as an executive producer and occasional writer is, is, does not give an indication of how important he was to that show. I mean, it was created by a guy named Anthony Yurkovich, who was a a writer, I think, on Hill Street Blues. And Yurkovich, you know, Yurkovich kind of came up with um, the the premise, and he was involved, you know, he was sort of the the main guy in terms of the writing. But every visual and oral decision went through Mann. Mann was basically the guy supervising what this show was going to look and sound like. And what he brought to it was... This idea that the the visual style and the music and sound design was all going to immerse you in the lives of these undercover vice cops, and basically the idea was the idea about the the idea behind the show mostly was it was about it was it was a very Michael Mann idea. It was about men who get too close to the flame in their work. You know, these guys were working undercover and lose sense of who they are, or they actually are maybe as much criminals as they are cops and being in that world, like allows them to kind of live in it a little too much. And it's, it's, you know, sort of about the psychological and physical dangers of all that. And all that was expressed through the camera and it was expressed through the lighting. It was expressed through things like when people would drive the way the cars would be framed against the streetlights so that the streetlights would be kind of creating these, uh, But this like sense of entrapment for people and stuff like that. And again, I don't know if the audience noticed any of this stuff. It was all kind of subliminal, but it really gave the show this hypnotic quality. that was unlike anything else on TV. And now, you know, I was going to say now it wouldn't stand out as much. However, I did preparing for this. I rewatched the pilot uh, a few nights ago with Kelly, who had never seen the show. And I was very curious to see how someone who was younger and who had never seen it would react to it. And she was really blown away by it. So I think it still does have the power that it had. But yeah, the cultural impact of it was huge. I mean, everybody had the Miami Vice soundtrack. Everybody was dressing like Don Johnson. People stopped shaving because Don Johnson didn't shave mm-hmm. in the show. I mean, it was ridiculous.
0: No, no. And I remember like glimpses of it and, and, and understanding. I, I understood sort of the popularity of it, but not on the level like I was a kid when it came it
1: out. It was also the thing I'll tell you about Miami Vice that makes it fun to go back and watch now is every actor you love. Was on Miami Vice. I mean, before they were anybody, whether it's Benicio Del Toro or I mean, like these people, you would not believe the people who show up on that show, like the guest spots. I mean, and it was because it was sort of like a um, at the time and the the casting director on it, whose name is escaping me right now, but she did a lot of Michael Mann's Bonnie Timmerman, I think, um, did a lot of Michael Mann stuff. And she like would just kind of pillage the New York theater community and bring these people down to Miami to shoot the show. And, like, so every great New York theater actor in the 80s was on this show as a guest star. And then they would end up, all of them, going on in the 90s to become, you know, movie and big movie and TV stars. So it's fun to watch it and see different people pop up. It's also fun because, you know, back in those days they didn't necessarily know that everyone would be revisiting these things on Blu-ray and streaming and stuff. So sometimes you'll even get the same guest actors like Paul Calderon. From Pulp Fiction, you know, he pops up as like different characters in different <laughs> episodes. And they kill him; they killed Paul Calder, Calderon off like three times on that show, um, so that's kind of fun too.
0: The show did a lot for the city of Miami because it was just mm-hmm. coming out of the sort of the the Cocaine Cowboys mm-hmm. era, and it it did immensely popular things in the realm of tourism for the city. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody wanted to go to Miami. I know that yeah. for a fact. Living here yeah. in Florida, it's still. Thought of as uh, one of the things that really helped to revitalize the Miami area, that particular show. It's so mm-hmm. awesome. So then we're going to get into uh, a film that I'll be the first to admit. I did not know that there was a Hannibal Lecter prior to Silence of the Lambs. I know I'm not the only one who who didn't realize that. But we're talking about 1986's Manhunter, which was based off of the novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which was the first theatrical introduction of the character of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who in this film was played by Brian Cox. The movie stars William Peterson, Kim Guest, Joan Allen, I mentioned Brian Cox, Dennis Farina, Stephen Lang. It's got a great cast. Tom Newman. Yeah. Again, just going by the numbers, not a financial success at the time, but has certainly had a reevaluation over the years. And watching it this week, I am still riveted by this film, and I think it is an absolute masterpiece. Your thoughts on Manhunter?
1: Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And and again, you know, it is it is one that, like you say, uh, you know, was not – people didn't really respond to any, And I remember seeing it in an empty theater when it came out. I remember literally being the only person sitting in the theater watching – me and my dad being the only two people in the theater watching it when it came out. Um, so it wasn't something that resp- people responded to in the moment, which, again, I, it's just that Michael Mann thing where I think he's always a little bit ahead of everybody. And clearly he was with that one, because, uh, you know, how many movies can you how many serial killer movies have come since Manhunter that, uh, you know, that, that that were influenced by or inspired by it? And, and you know, because the whole the whole conceit behind Manhunter behind behind Manhunter, if people who haven't seen it is. That the William Peterson character who is investigating this serial killer, the serial killer, um, you know, he basically is able to get in the mind of this guy and and to to great psychological danger to himself. And that's why he is able is why he's good at his job. And again, this is a very Michael Mann concept. I mean, the movie Manhunter is quite different in a lot of ways from Red Dragon. Um, the book. There's a lot to it that is brought to it by man. And a lot of the things that man brought to it are the things that became cliches in serial killer movies for decades afterward. But I think it still has this remarkable power, um, because not not only because it was first, but because it's just so deep, those ideas are so deeply felt by man and his, you know, the dialogue writing is just so fantastic. And the acting is so fantastic. And you know, William Peterson, by the way, that was only his really his second movie. I mean, he had been, he had been extra in thief. He had been a bar, he's a bartender in like one scene in thief. And then I think the only other movie he had done before manhunter was to live and die in LA, which hadn't even come out yet, which by the way, here's an interesting, bizarre piece of trivia. To live and die in LA. made me think of this because directed by William Friedkin, man actually flirted with the idea of having William Friedkin play Hannibal Lecter initially. And for whatever reason decided against that, which would have been very interesting. But, um, he thought about having Friedkin and then that didn't go through. And then he was thinking about Brian Dennehy and Brian Dennehy actually said to man, here's what a good friend I am. I'm going to tell you an actor. I know who can do this better than me. His name's Brian Cox. And so man would see Brian Cox in a play and was like, Oh yeah, this guy is it. And it's so funny. Again, this is the age thing. It's always funny to me when I hear people who, who say what you just said, that like they didn't know there was a Hannibal Lecter movie for Lambs because to me, I always will think of Brian Cox first as Hannibal Lecter. I mean, cause that was the first one I saw. And so, and he is just, you know, so chilling in the movie. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a scene in Manhunter where he does this basically does this thing like hacking into a phone and gets a piece of information. That's quite frightening. And I just, I will never forget like my heart just dropping into my stomach in the theater, watching that scene and the way he plays it. And obviously Anthony Hopkins is a great, Hannibal Lecter as well. I mean, they're two very different interpretations of the same character. And in fact, I think, you know, if I was a teacher in a film school, I think you could teach an interesting class on what a director does by showing the class Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal and Red Dragon. Um, And essentially, you see through that, like what four very different directors, Michael Mann, Jonathan Demme, Ridley Scott and Brett Ratner, like all do with the same raw materials. Cause those movies could not be more different from each other, even though they all have kind of similar underpinnings. But anyway, I agree with you The Manhunter is I mean, I think it's a virtually perfect movie and, um, and it was a movie that kind of grew out of some of those experiments that man was doing on Miami vice with music and stuff. The whole climax of man to where it's like a shootout set to Inagata DeVita. I mean, that's straight out of Miami vice. And, um, but yeah, it was, it, it's a movie that I think, uh, for whatever reason, did not resonate with the public at the time, and I'm not sure why. Because again, they were certainly ready for all that kind of stuff. A few years, le- you know, by the early '90s, you couldn't get away from movies like that.
0: From '86 to '92, it looks like the majority of his time was focused on television work.
1: Well, I think I think the TV stuff is important not to gloss over because for a couple reasons. I mean, the main, the, well, the main one being you know, and I guess we, we actually probably talk about this when we get to Heat, the bizarre evolution of Heat because, you know, that's like a whole, I mean, he was trying to do, because in that in that period you're talking about between Manhunter and uh, West of the Mohicans, you know, he was trying to do, he was trying to do Heat as a TV series. I mean, he was trying, that thing went through so many iterations. He was trying to get Walter Hill to direct it as a movie, then he was trying to do it as a TV series, um, and yeah, he did that show Crime Story in there, which is sort of one of the great underrated, you know, TV series everybody talks about now as being so fantastic, but but clearly no one was actually watching it at the time because it didn't it didn't really last that long. But it was one that had, it was another show that had a great cast Dennis Farina and was like great directors like Abel Ferrara and things like that. But um, uh, but one thing and I guess we get to a little bit more when we get to heat. But in between I believe if my memory is correct in between Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans uh, man directed the TV movie L.A. Takedown, which is basically the rough draft for heat.
0: Okay. All right. Is that readily readily available to find? Which I, I've never uh, seen it. So
1: it is also it is also a movie that I have like an import DVD of. I think I'm sure that's when you probably would. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. That one, if you could find it on YouTube, it's not going to lose as much because the fascinating thing about LA Takedown. So, so here's the thing. So he wrote Heat in like 1979, um, based on a the the Neil Macaulay character that De Niro plays is based on a real guy named Neil Macaulay, a real thief who one of the cops who was a technical advisor on Thief um, killed and had had an experience like in the movie between Pacino and De Niro, like he actually had run into this guy. They shared like a meal. They had this conversation about their lives. And then this cop ended up having to kill him uh, in a robbery. And so man was always fascinated by this wrote, wrote this like 200 page script about it in 1979. That over the years, he would Try to get made. And again, even with other directors, like at one point he thought about trying to have Walter Hill direct it. And so by the time you get to like the late 80s, he gets this idea to do it as a series. And so LA Takedown was a TV movie that was essentially supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a series. And LA Takedown, if you can see it and you're a Heat fan, it is totally fascinating because it's tons of the same dialogue. I mean, it really is just like a rough draft for Heat. It is. It's the same scenes, the same dialogue, the same basic story, and yet it is not a good movie. And it is a fascinating act to compare these two movies and see what the difference, how different the differences make these two movies, starting with the acting, I mean, um, because I don't remember who the actors are in only takedown, but they're not De Niro and Pacino. And. These guys, and they're not and they're not on the kind of schedule that Heat had. I mean, on Heat, you know, man shot that movie. It, it was over a 100-day shooting schedule. He had all the time in the world. He had two of the greatest act, living actors in the world, you know, to really work it over. L.A. Takedown you know, a TV movie that was probably shot in, like, 12 days or something. You know, they kind of rushed through it. And so these scenes and this dialogue that plays so beautifully in Heat comes across as just, like, corny and silly in L.A. Takedown. And... It's, it's also fascinating because Ellie takedown is only about 90 minutes, but it essentially still has like the whole same story that heat does. And you realize that what makes heat great is that deliberation and that like burrowing into every detail and stretching out every moment. and all of that actually makes it a more exciting movie, not a less exciting movie, the fact that it's twice as long. But anyway, so yeah, Ellie takedown it's it's really worth checking out. Oh, and the end of the story is that, you know in terms of me talking about the acting not being that great in it after man shot the, shot the movie the network said that they would do it as a series if he reshot it and replaced the lead actor because they didn't like him, uh, the lead actor uh, and man refused so it just kind of died there until he revived it uh, five or six years later as heat
0: interesting and 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 just uh just for those listening i went ahead and just pulled up youtube real quick and i did find a uh, the 1 hour and 33 33- minute version of LA takedown. So I'm going to add that to the list.
1: It's uh, definitely worth checking out. I think anyone who's into heat uh will find it quite fascinating because it's really similar. It's really similar and yet not at all the same. I mean it's it's so bizarre.
0: I can't wait. I'm I'm going to watch that tonight. I'm looking forward to okay. it. So this is going to bring us to 1992. And this will be the first Michael Mann film that I saw in the theater. And I kept that trend going uh, all the way to 2015. Of course, we're talking about the insanely epic Last of the Mohicans. I mean, it is a movie that I revisit at least once a year. So your thoughts on The Last of the Mohicans?
1: (laughs) Um, Obviously, a beautifully made movie and clearly uh, fits in with Michael Mann's preoccupations with just, again, like anthropological detail. I mean, I think the thing that is, the thing that's great in the Last of the Beacons is just the, I, the sense that like, you know, again, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, probably could have, you know, lived in the forest on fruits and berries and, you know, built his own weapons and by the time he got through with all the training he had to do for that movie. You know, I have to admit, I'm I, the thing about Michael Mann for me, and I was, I was thinking about this, I was trying to figure out why this is, like, it's from a personal, just a personal point of view, um, in terms of just my subjective response to his movies, I don't like his period pieces that much. Like, if I had to name my three least favorite Michael Mann movies, no question, it'd be Last of the Mohicans, Ali, and Public Enemies. And I was trying to figure out why that is. And Ali, I still don't have a great answer for. But Last of the Mohicans and Public Enemies, I do. And it is that I think, you know, reading about Michael Mann's methods uh, for this podcast, as you know, reading a bunch of interviews with him and how he does things. um, You know, when he does a movie like Heat or The Insider or Black Hat or Thief, any of those kind of movies, part of his process is he just does an insane amount of research with the people who do those actual jobs or with the people who the movie is actually about. And so he's, you know, if he's doing thief, he's spending a year hanging out with thieves and cops and asking them about everything they do and learning about their tools and all that kind of stuff. If he's doing the insider, he's spending a lot of time with Lowell Bergman and learning about the inner workings of 60 minutes and CBS and all that kind of stuff. And with last, of the Mohicans Public enemies, he can't do that because those people are all dead. And so there's a, for me, a remove in those movies that doesn't exist in his other movies. You know the conne- that that sort of visceral heated connection that I feel to the characters and situations in the best Michael Mann movies. I personally just don't get in *Last of the Mohicans* and *Public Enemies*, and I think it's because that. I think it's because he's making them more the way people typically make movies. It's based more on the kinds of inspirations and sources that normal people and by normal people, I mean, people who are not as great and obsessive as Michael Mann um, make movies. So, you know, obviously I'm in the vast minority because, again, it was his biggest hit. But I also think that's why it was his biggest hit. I think I think it was his most it's the one that's kind of the most in touch with traditional movie pleasures. I mean, it's it's shockingly faithful in a way to the 1936 last of the Mohicans movie. So it's kind of got a lot of old fashioned movie pleasures and there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. But for me, it feels, it doesn't feel like a Michael Mann movie the way the ones I really love do.
0: Well, take me through, is this the reaction you had seeing it in the theater in
1: 92? Uh, when I saw it in the theater in 92, I was bored as dirt by it. I actually like it a lot more now. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I was not into it. I just thought it was flat. As I just thought it was kind of a corny, flat, you know. And and I, it just wasn't it wasn't for me.
0: I had the opposite reaction. I but it, this was a period piece for me that I and, and again to, to understand 92, like I'm 14, 15 years old when this film comes uh-huh. out. And and period piece films were not really my jam at, at yeah. that age. But this was a film that for some reason I just really wanted to see. And I think it was a film that taught me to sort of, you know, movies can take their time. And they can, you know, you know, there's there's gonna be a payoff. And I think the the final twenty minutes of the film, especially coupled in with the, I think, what is it? Just a brilliant, brilliant score for the film. Yeah, I mean that I agree. that that got me the the from the from the scene where everything happens with them fighting up on the clifftops, I mean, I just think mm-hmm. that is a spectacular, spectacular scene in the film, and uh, uh, I think it's for me for me it was worth to put worth it to put the time in just to get to the last twenty minutes of the film.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great last twenty minutes. And I mean, it's again, it, objectively speaking, it's clearly a great movie. There's just something about it that I don't, that I don't personally respond to. And at the time it came out, you know, when, when it was coming out, the same year as stuff like Unforgiven and uh, the Brian De Palma movie Raising Kane, I think, and uh, you know, I don't know, even even Malcolm X. I just felt like there was that was a year where there was a lot of big, interesting movies. And and Last of the Mohicans kind of felt a little square to me. At the time. And, and again, it's, I maybe be, Michael Mann's one of those guys who I almost put re- like unfair, unreasonable expectations on because he's so great. It's like, I expect him to reinvent the wheel every time. And that's an unfair expectation to put on any director. However, he most, he does it more often than not. I was going to so, say, yeah,
0: that's, that's typically the case for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's, let's bring to a movie that I think you and I are definitely see eye to eye on a hundred percent. And that would be arguably his best film 1995's heat your thoughts
1: yeah i don't know if i can say it's his best you're going to you're going to think i've lost my mind when you find out what i think when we get to what i think is his best but uh but it's definitely up there and it's definitely his most I, I don't i don't know if perfect is the right word but it is it is a well-oiled machine where every piece serves its purpose purposefully you know perfectly and is again the interesting thing think going back to that thought of LA takedown um, you know, what's interesting about Heat is that it basically elevates like, you know, the cop and crook movies have been a staple of American cinema since the silent era. And essentially what Heat does is takes one of those movies, it takes like what would have been an 80 minute movie with James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart at Warner Brothers in the 30s. And digs so deep into each minute detail of how these guys live their lives and who the people are in their lives and what the tools are of their jobs and how they do their jobs and how they they all how this whole ecosystem affects each other you know that it stretches it out to three hours almost but there's not a boring minute in it i mean this thing moves like a rocket it's so perfectly structured i mean it's just like it's an amazing study in ensemble storytelling. I mean, there are, you know, watch, I watched again this week and I mean, I'm always like amazed by how much stuff happens in that movie and how many, how many fully realized characters there are in that movie, how you just really get to know everybody so well and how they all reflect off of each other. I mean, how the different ideas in the movie about, you know, cause that's, it goes back to what I was saying about man and philosophy at the beginning of the, the interview in terms of his obsession with these questions about how we live our lives and what are we living for and it's like the De Niro character in Heat you know is such a mystifying figure in some ways because his philosophy makes total sense this idea that if you're a thief you don't have any attachments that you can't walk out on because you're gonna have to walk out on and if the cops are coming for you but what kind of life is that? Like, you know, you see him at the beginning of the movie in this empty house he lives in with no one, and it's kind of like, well, why bother? Like, why even bother knocking over banks and armored cars to live this way, you know? And um it's it's a it's a you know, it's a, it's an interesting question, and then the way that like his philosophy is again like so rigid that in a way it becomes his undoing, like he can't roll, he can't roll with the changes, and he has such a, you know, he's got such a like firm, he's got such rigid ideas of what he believes to be right and moral in a way. Even though he's this murdering bank robber, um, he does have the sense of morality where it's like he's offended by the wrong that has been done to him by this Wayne grow character, and just can't let it go. Like if he could just let it go, he could have this great life with Amy Brenneman, but he can't let it go. And whereas on the other hand the Val Kilmer character, who initially seems like a guy who doesn't have it all together, like the De Niro character, and seems very like, you would think that would be the guy to go down. And yet the Val Kilmer character is actually quite flexible in his, you know, he can walk out on it, he can walk out on everything and goes on to live another day. And, and it's just interesting watching all of those kind of stories ping pong off of each other. And then the way the Pacino character ping pongs off of it and the whole, you know, and I think there's I've got to assume that with Michael Mann, because he goes back to these kinds of characters so often, you know, there's gotta be some degree of, I don't know about autobiography, but he, a personal connection to a guy like the Pacino character who is so obsessed with his, you know, obsessed with his work to the point of, uh, you know, to the expense of everything else in his life. And, um, you know, I've got to assume man is probably somewhat like that, which is how he makes such great movies. Um, you know, but that's there's just so many. Again, great actors, movie, great, great sense of detail, great little, the insights into human nature in that movie are just so like in in almost almost you know like funny in like really depressing moments, like when when Pacino is with his wife at the hospital and his stepdaughter is just trying to kill herself, and it seems like they're kind of. You know, for once, he's there for them. And then, of course, that's the moment where he gets the call. that Like, oh, De Niro's at this hotel. And the look on Pacino's face, like, you, you know he's going to go. And I just think that's, like, such a great true moment about human nature and about the nature of a certain kind of workaholic man. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm really, ramb- I'm really no, rambling. No, 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 it's fine. Say, it's but, fine. Like, uh, I, but, yeah, Like, I was going to say, like,
0: watching this film yesterday – you know and i i again watch this quite frequently little things like you know the introduction of Dennis Haysbert's character mm-hmm. and then you don't see him for an hour and a half in the yeah. film and, you, and 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 you you come back to it and and you're just like oh wait like, you almost forget that he was in it and then you see him work right. at the diner and I, and i'm like that is incredible foreshadowing like how yeah. he did that like it's just i'm i I've, I've seen the film honest to goodness 10, 10 times, at least like 10 times really watching it. And I mm. pick up on something new every time I've seen it. And I'd also like to point out that this is a, in my opinion, a love letter to Los Angeles filmmaking because of the, yeah. the, 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 the locations he uses.
1: For sure. It's well, you know, at the time it was made, I don't know if this is still true. Uh, probably is. Uh, at the time it was made, he used the greatest number of locations of any movie ever shot in Los Angeles, because there's not, I believe there's not a single, scene shot on set in this entire movie. Everything is real locations, everything. And I remember I was living here uh, when they were shooting this movie. And I was friends with a director who was very good friends with Michael Mann. And so I would hear these reports while they were shooting. I mean, they were shooting for like 100 nights all over L.A. And it was like the people on the crew, they were all losing their minds because they didn't see sunlight for like six months. Um, But they were running all over the city shooting everywhere. And, yeah, it is. I mean, that's certainly man. Again, what he does for Th- for Chicago in Thief, he does for LA in uh, Heat and Collateral. I mean, he's just a great. His that's another thing that I think he's great. His sense of like locations and how how to use locations to tell a story and to sort of psychologically uh, underline wherever he wants to about the characters. I mean, it's it's unparalleled.
0: The uh, the one other thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this that. Seeing Heat in the theater and during the the famous bank robbery shootout in downtown Los Angeles, I remember vividly being terrified during that sequence because it was the first time in any movie that the sound effects of the guns going off sounded real. Yeah. And I, I have not seen that since... I mean, I had never seen that before and not until we get into... Uh, you know, collateral and public enemies, do I do I hear that again? So he has real, you know, real detail for something uh, like when it comes down to the sound effects of gunshots. I mean, it was yeah. terrifying.
1: Yeah, the sound design of that movie is unbelievable. I mean, I, I had the same experience seeing it, you know, opening day at the Man Chinese here in Hollywood, which is, you know, one of the best theaters in LA and and seeing it huge. And I mean, that's another thing too, you know, it's so, talking about heat almost makes me just like un just unbearably nostalgic because uh that you know think about this in within a couple months of each other within like two months of each other heat casino and nixon all came out in the theaters like three incredibly ambitious entertaining intelligent well-resourced American epics by three fantastic filmmakers who were allowed to go that long, like three like great three-hour movies. The fact that those those all came out within a few weeks of each other, like that is unsinkable. Now, like it's it's I can't imagine um those movies getting made that way. But but anyway, so I mean, De Niro was like he had you know basically two of the greatest movies ever made came out within a month of each other. With I think Casino came out maybe came out a little bit before he, but they're around the same time anyway. Um. yeah, no, the sound design and he is amazing. And again, it goes back to that authenticity. I mean, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know what real guns sound like. I have don't spend any time around guns and I don't, I've never robbed a bank, but <laughs> they, it seems like yes, there is like a a power to the way the guns fire in his movies um, and even just the way, the way people die in his movies when they get shot, where it's just like a kind of somebody's, where it's just like it's like somebody pulled the string out of a toy or something like the way Tom Sizemore, spoiler alert, uh, um, you know, drops in heat when he gets shot. I mean, there's it, again, it's just I, know I keep using that word over and over again on authenticity. But that really is what makes man man and what separates him from certainly from other action directors, because I think other action directors, you know, the, even the great, great ones. The again, the Walter Hills, the John Woo's, the Catherine Bigelow's, the Sam Peckinpah's, whoever they they can never resist like they can't resist going for what's cool and man movies are very cool but he'll always i think go for more like how would this really happen uh than he will anything else that's always like his priority and i don't i think he's i think he's the only major action director you could say that about
0: yeah so heat was made on an estimated budget of 60 million took in 187 million so Tripled its budget and, uh, you know, obviously has gone down, uh, you know, 26 years later as one of the great American films of all time. You kind of mentioned that he kind of reinvents himself with with each subsequent movie and and the movies uh, are always drastically different. He follows up Heat four years later with The Insider, which, again, Insider, for those who haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it. Al Pacino, Russell Crowe, Christopher Plummer, Philip Baker Hall uh all-star cast pretty heavy movie in the sense of it's based on a true story uh for those who don't know what the insider is fictionalized account of a true story it's based on the 60 minute segments about jeffrey weingart a whistleblower in the tobacco industry this is a movie that really introduced a lot of people to russell crowe and he worked with al pacino again so i don't think we've ever discussed the insider i'd be curious to know your thoughts on the film
1: yeah, definitely one of his best, um, in my opinion. It was a great follow-up to *Heat*, it was, and and, uh, and again, you know, interesting because it is not technically an action movie, but it has the same uh, it has the same intensity, though, that a Michael Mann action movie does. And I think it's because the thing it it has that all his action movies have again is this kind of, these kind of like moral and ethical dilemmas and decisions. I mean, the whole movie, you know, the Russell Crowe character basically uh, is a guy who you know, by doing the right thing is pretty much going to screw up his entire life and his family. And then and, you know, the, then then the Pacino character has to kind of, you know, also gets put into some sort of thorny ethical and moral issues and becomes a sort of whistleblower himself. And the movie, you know, again, as all the things that make man great, you've got this kind of the, the that journalistic detail of a world, you know, here it's this world of, network news and and the tobacco industry and and this is a whole other thing about michael Mann too that like i think doesn't get talked about is that his movie if you watch his movies from thief on it's it's i mean there's exceptions to this but it's kind of like a it's kind of an ongoing cinematic history of like late 20th and early 21st century american capitalism and you know even going back to like you know thief where like the james conn character kind of kind of like spouts all these kind of like marxist uh like like statements about the you know the fruits of his the yield of his labor and stuff and like the movies and a lot of these movies are kind of about like you know what is um like what's worth money and what are you willing to do for money and what is not what can you not buy and all that kind of stuff i mean man's movies are very very obsessed with uh with the financial imperatives that motivate our lives and the insider is probably like one of the the best examples of that, but it's a, it's a truly, uh, you know, a truly great movie in my opinion. I mean, I definitely think it's up there as one of his best.
0: What's fascinating about the film is I am just enamored with the way that he opens the movie with, mm-hmm. with Christopher Plummer, you know, interviewing, you know, out in the middle East and it has nothing to do with the tobacco industry, but it's just, show, right. it's just showing, you know, how 60 minutes operates and yeah, Uh, I just, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's an underrated movie. It made a hundred million at the box office at the time. Got nominated
1: for best picture.
0: Nominated for best picture, introduced, really introduced us to Russell Crowe. I mean, I know he had been Mm -hmm. doing some work before that. Uh, but I would, I would recommend this one to anyone. It's, I think it's a stellar film.
1: I guess I got, well, let me say, I guess I got, I was, I stand corrected then from what I said at the beginning of this interview, cause I didn't realize it made a hundred million dollars. So I guess it, uh, it was, it was a, I I guess my, my, uh, my assertion that he didn't have that many hits is being proven wrong by, <laughs> by some of these uh, numbers you're throwing out. But the other interesting thing about, yeah, that whole, that whole, uh, Mike Wallace thing at the beginning is, is great. And, um, and like, in terms of how it shows all, you know, it also like sort of shows like just in a way, like the disappointment when, you know, when Mike Wallace doesn't do the right thing later in the movie, because at the beginning, it kind of him, establishes him as this kind of like fearless guy. And, um, then when you find out what he is afraid of, it, it's, it's kind of depressing, but it leads me to an interesting story about this movie, which is, uh, you know, going back to man and his research and all of that, he, at one point, like sent the script to Mike Wallace, uh, you know, to sort of say I'm doing this movie and this is what it is, and blah blah blah. And Mike Wallace called Michael Mann, and started cursing him out, and was like, "I didn't say any of this, I didn't do that." And Michael Mann ended up changing the dialogue in the script and using all the stuff that Mike Wallace said on the phone to him in the movie, <laughs> like basically as this guy's dialogue because he loved it. Like basically, you know, all like. The stuff that Mike Wallace was saying, but I'm not going to do live the rest, you know, the rest of my years in the wilderness of NPR and all that kind of stuff. That was all stuff that he had said to Michael Mann in anger on the phone, and Mann was like, "This is great. This is the stuff you're going to say in the movie." And but Mike Wallace was not happy with the movie. He was not a fan of uh, the insider.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. So that's going to bring us to 2001's Ali, which is a biopic uh, produced by John Peters and, of course, starring Will Smith. Jamie Foxx, John Voigt Mario Van Peoples Ron Silver Jeffrey Wright uh, now this is a movie here is you know the listed budget on this is anywhere from 107 to 118 million uh, which is which is I think as far as I can tell his biggest budget bi- biggest budget film up until that point point. Mm-hmm. and of course this was starring the king of, you know, what I would call sort of the July 4th King, which was Will Smith, he, as you know, from 96 on, he was, he could do no wrong. Uh This was released on Christmas Day, however, of 2001. I've only seen this film one time. Uh, I, it, it was not a movie that I had an opportunity to revisit for this conversation, but I would, uh, of course, be curious to hear your thoughts on Ali.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a weird movie. And, you know, it's not surprising that, you know, even though you talk about Will Smith being this like box office king at that time. I mean, it's not surprising to me that it wasn't a movie that that, that people really responded to. Cause it's like the Will Smith that people went to see on 4th of July was Will Smith. It was like that persona. It was not this, you know, this movie he's like, there's nothing in common with any of those movies or, you know, characters. It's like, I mean, the, the he's, it's what makes it his performance in Ali great is that he's completely sublimating himself to Muhammad Ali. But it's also kind of like, well, no one's going to go see that movie to see Will Smith. Um, You know, Ali is a weird movie because it's obviously exceptionally well made in certain ways, exceptionally well acted. Voight is great as Cosell. Mario Van Peebles is great as Malcolm X. There's a ton of it's a movie that for me has like if you take any scene from that movie out of context and watch it, it's great. But there's something about the way they all add up that just is a little bit like I don't know. It just doesn't. I, on the one hand, I admire a man for not going the, the standard biopic route. Like it is not a, a standard biopic in terms of the way that it's structured and, and everything, but it also doesn't replace that for me with anything else. Like it just doesn't have the kind of satisfactions that you're looking for from a movie like that in terms of really understanding this guy or getting a new insight into him. Like, I, there's a little bit. I mean, I think you get a little bit of sort of insight into the pressures that he was under as a role model and an icon and all that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, it's it's always been it's like I was saying, you know, there's sort of a, there's like three Michael Mann movies that I don't just have like a strong personal connection with. And that's one of them. I mean, it's like Mohicans that and and Public Enemies. And and again, it's a weird I can't I can't really put my finger on it because it is objectively speaking like a beautifully made movie. And like you say, he had a ton of money and it's all up on the screen. I mean, it's incredibly well mounted, but, um, but that's a movie. It's kind of the opposite of heat. Like with heat, the way that somebody like a Dennis Haysbert, you get a full sense of this guy's life in like three scenes. Um, Ali, people come in and out of that movie and you don't know who they are or why they're there. And, and it's kind of almost like it's a movie that on the one hand, if you come into it with no knowledge whatsoever of the real people and the real history, you're going to be totally confused. But if you do have knowledge of it, it doesn't necessarily give you anything new. It's not. It's you know, it's just kind of an illustration. So it's you know, probably at the end of the day, it's 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 the one I've revisited the fewest times. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it maybe three times, but that's low for a Michael Mann movie for me.
0: That's going to bring us to 2004, and this is. I think the Michael Mann film that I have revisited it the most, even more than heat. Mm -hmm. I am such a fan of collateral and it was such a uh, subverting expectations to have Tom Cruise in the role that he was in Mm -hmm. and to have Jamie Foxx play such an exceptional character and to watch the two of them basically become each other by Mm -hmm. the end of the film. And of course, you know, collateral is the film that and you mentioned earlier, this was filmed digitally. I mean, I think up until this point, Lucas was the only person with, uh, I think, Attack of the Clones had was filmed digitally, but that looked like a digital movie. I mean, it was all mm-hmm. you know CGI VF, VFX shots. So let's just get into into Collateral.
1: Well, I think Collateral looks like a digital movie too. I mean, big time. Like I think that was Collateral when that came out. I, I remember being like, "What the fuck am I looking at?" When I saw that in the theater because it was so. Those night exteriors, where you could see for blocks and blocks—I mean, you cannot do that on a film. That is impossible. The What, what he did—I mean—and that—and this speaks to another thing I like about Michael Mann, which is that some filmmakers, you know, when the digital revolution started to occur—and again, Mike, as you say, Michael Mann was really one of the—he was one of the first, like, major guys to embrace it. Um, Lucas had indeed shot both *Phantom Menace* and *Clones* were uh, digital, and there have been. There have been a couple others, but but really, as far as, like, a ma- I can't think of something comparable to Collateral, uh, I might be forgetting, but where, in terms of, like, a major director with a major movie star doing a very, very expensive, wide release shot on high-def movie, um, but when Mann decided to do that, it wasn't for the reasons most people shoot digital now, which is just, you know, cheaper and easier, supposedly, although I have a whole... There's a lot of arguments about that, but, um, but Mann really... He took to digital because it was a tool. It was a storytelling tool for him that he could use differently than film in the sense that, again, you know, man is this nocturnal filmmaker. I was talking about Heat, shooting over, you know, 100 nights or whatever. Um, You know, he's a nocturnal filmmaker and in collateral. And then he really takes it to the limit in Miami Vice, um, the Miami Vice movie you know he uses the this the sensors for these digital cameras what what they're capable of in terms of shooting in low light situations and giving you these kind of like enormous cityscapes where you've got great detail in the foreground with the characters but also you can just sort of see these cities endless at night um you know that's that's using the digital cinematography in a way that you can't use film, whereas a lot of people, I think when they shoot digitally, they're not doing anything differently than they would do in film. It's like they're ba- and, and in fact, a lot of times they're just trying to make digital look like film, which you can do nowadays. But, uh, um, you know, man is man is. And this is what I meant again about him kind of getting ahead of his time a little bit. Collateral doesn't look strange now, but it looked strange as hell when it came out to me when I saw it in the theater um, because of that. But leaving all of that aside, you know, all the 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 technical stuff, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it's the one that you say you've watched the most times. I, you know, I don't know what one. I'm I'm not sure which one I've watched the most times. But I know, Collateral is definitely like just his one of his most like rip roaringly entertaining. Like that thing just moves. It moves like a rocket. And again, perfectly, perfectly elegantly structured. And when you were talking about the foreshadowing of like Hazebert and Heat, you know the the role of the Jada Pinkett character in Collateral. I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie, but. You know, when you see the movie again, it's totally obvious, like where it's going. Like you're like, how did I miss this the first time? But the way he kind of lays in the role of the, the Jada Pink- Pinkett character is going to play in the movie is really elegant and and beautiful. And and as you say, you know, Cruise Cruise is great. I kind of miss I, I kind of miss the late '90s, well, really late '80s through '90s through early 2000s. Tom Cruise I and mean, Collateral might have been like like the last one like this. You know, I miss the I miss the Tom Cruise who liked to sometimes play unlikable characters and stuff like Magnolia and collateral, and even to a certain degree, uh, you know, eyes wide shut. I think now he just seems like he's kind of protecting his mission impossible persona or something. And it's, it's a shame cause he's so good. Um, of course not that Tom, I'm sure Tom Cruise really needs career advice from me, but, yeah. uh, but I do miss, you know, those kinds of, Interesting performances he would do for directors like man in uh, in Collateral because it's it's a really funny it's a really interesting performance it's an interesting look they give him where he basically looks like the Neil mccauley character from Heat but yeah it's a great movie and it's a great like yeah you know, it's a great like you were saying two hander kind of a- a- actors piece between him and Jamie Foxx. but then. Splintering out from that or all of these other interesting little side movies like with uh, Mark Ruffalo and Peter Berg as the those cops and and again just like a sort of movie if you're a screenwriting student. Uh, and Mann did not write Collateral. I mean, he rewrote Stuart Beatty's script, so he, it didn't originate with him. But but Collateral, you, much like Heat, it's just a great movie to study if you want to kind of study screenplay structure and how how to link together different stories. I mean, it's really really beautifully done.
0: And without getting into any major spoilers here, the uh, the arc of Mark Ruffalo's character always gets me in mm-hmm. that film, and you, you just you feel like you know there's this. Uh, For a fleeting moment, there's this uh, resounding sense of optimism that everything's going to be okay. And then just like you described earlier, in the snap of the fingers, it's over. It's over with. And that's one of the things that I've always, again, noticed about man's films. And you mentioned that, you know, when people are killed in his films, it's it's very uh, abrupt and very deliberate. And none of them have sort of the hero send-off dying in their arms, you know, like, Mm, remember my name. No, no. It's very realistic and very visceral. And that, oh boy, does that ever resonate a lot in Collateral? And uh, Yeah,
1: Heat he is the closest to that kind of send off. And I feel like he earns it in that one after everything everybody's been through. I mean, Heat's the closest to having kind of a dramatic, poetic send off at the end for one of his characters. But he's, you know, he, but it's another thing. He's, you know, he's obsessed with time. He's obsessed with, uh, he's also obsessed with luck and, and, and like, or lack of it. And like a lot of times in his movies, it's like the characters. Uh, you know, they're just who lives and dies is just a matter of like good luck or bad luck. It's it's very uh, it's, it's really brutal.
0: And I'm just going to reminisce about one of my favorite scenes in the film because there's so many. You know, the, the scene mm. where Jamie Foxx meets with Harvey R. Barden, that's mm-hmm. an incredible sequence. Of course, the scene in the nightclub with, as, as a former DJ, I immediately recognized the Paul Oakenfold track, Ready, Stay, right. Ready Steady, Go. It was the Korean version uh, mm-hmm. playing it. That's an incredible scene. But for me, it's always going to be the scene in the jazz club. That mm-hmm. that was the the moment that I was, when I saw that for the first time, I was like, this is such a masterpiece of a film. Mm-hmm. Just love it. Yeah.
1: Well, it's the moment where you realize that Tom Cruise is just like a total sociopath, <laughs> as opposed to like, having because he's kind of, you know, there's like a sense with the Tom Cruise character, like, oh, is he going to be this kind of likable killer or whatever? And um, yeah, that's a very unsettling scene. So that's going to bring
0: us to one of probably mm-hmm. Michael Mann's most divisive films, would you say? Would you agree with that statement? <laughs> Talking about 2006's Miami would- Vice? <laughs>
1: I would agree, having been on the side of the divide that thinks it's his best movie. So uh, I've I've certainly got my fill of hearing the side that does not think that. But yes, I think it's definitely one of his most divisive.
0: I'm just going to take you through my first seeing, my first viewing in the theater and not really being familiar with the source material for the the original show, Miami Vice. The Mm -hmm. way that movie picks up and the way that movie begins, I felt two things one I felt like I I must have gotten to the theater 30 minutes late because <laughs> the mo- the movie basically opens up with like what wait, wait what what's going on and, mm-hmm. and then I immediately I was like oh well I've never seen the show so I don't know who these characters are I must be missing something but I don't think that was the case and now having seen the film subsequent times I think it's amazing I love the movie yeah. but I will say that I left the theater uh, super confused. The first time I saw the film.
1: Well, there are certain movies that that are designed for two viewings, and I think that's one of them. I mean, I think Tenet is one of them. And, you know, the problem with a movie that's designed for two viewings is a lot of people aren't going to want to come back after the first time if you've left them confused like that. And that's certainly been the case. You know, I watched, uh, you know, Tenet was for me, you know, probably my favorite movie of last year. And then recently uh, I showed it to Kelly, who had not seen it, and she you know, like, first of all, like, for some reason on our TV, you couldn't understand half the dialogue. Let me just say,
0: I saw it in IMAX. And I couldn't understand the dialogue either. So it wasn't just your TV.
1: (laughs) Well, it's weird. It's weird, because I saw it in a drive in. And at the drive in playing through my car speakers, it sounded perfect. Like I could hear everything. (laughs) It's so strange that like, this movie has different places where it won't. But anyway, she was, you know, completely had kind of a similar reaction to Tenet that you, that you had to Miami Vice, where she was very confused by a lot. And I was saying to her, yeah, but when you watch it again, now you'll get it. All this stuff will make sense. And she's just like, I'm not going to, like, why would I want to watch it again? Like, after all that, you know? And so I think that is a risk with um, these kind of movies. But I, and I think you're absolutely right about my. I mean, what you're describing is kind of what I like about it. Like, I like the fact that Miami Vice, it just plunges you into these guys' lives. Like, there is no exposition. There is no set up it is just boom it's like it's like somebody just happened to drop a camera on that day into their lives and what they do and boom that's it and you have to catch up and it is it does make for a confusing first viewing and i will acknowledge that the first time i saw it i did not have the opinion of it i have now that i think i mean i liked it but i i did not that was what i did not connect with emotionally the way i do now like now i watch it and i feel like just you know it's sort of it sort of elaborates on those ideas I talked about in the series, in terms of like going undercover and like if you're still the same person, and if you are, uh, and if if you're losing yourself, and like what does it do to you morally to be like, you know, the whole the whole relationship uh, that Colin Farrell has in that movie, um, you know, where where he's in love but pretending to be somebody else and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I just think that stuff is fantastic now, but um, but on the first viewing, I I agree. I was sort of spending so much time trying to play catch up. That I didn't really get emotionally invested in it until I saw it again. But now, now that I've seen it many times, uh, it is probably my favorite Michael Mann movie. I mean, it's a toss up between it and Heat. Um, but I do think Miami Vice has, again, all these things we're talking about, it does in some ways the best of any of his movies, just in terms of the kind of anthropological detail, this view of like the kind of globalization of crime. And again, as far as like these movies being this like, history of contemporary capitalism like by the time you get to miami vice and black hat where you've got it's this kind of globalization of everything from drugs to people to guns to what whatever being sold across borders and the way he gets into all that is great to like just i don't know you know what the budget for miami vice was but it looks like the most expensive fucking movie ever made 135 yeah i mean the scale of it is just astonishing uh to me and yeah and, and just again like all those little details of, uh, details and everything and and um, yeah, and just in terms of the direction of the action i mean like like one thing i really like about michael Mann's action sequences you know you can, you've got something like the bank heist in heat which is an amazing huge set piece but then i love when michael Mann does these like close quarter action sequences like in the trailer in miami vice where they're holding uh, jamie fox's uh, I, don't, I don't remember if it's his girlfriend or his wife, but whatever she is, um, his partner, who's also in both love and work when they've got, when those, the, those uh, like white supremacist guys are holding her in the trailer and they have the shootout and the knife fight and stuff in the trailer, like man is just so great at that kind of stuff. And there's more of it in, in black hat as well. Like I love, I love when man gets into like the intimacy of the violence and like these, like when these guys are like killing each other right up close and what that means to like, have your life endangered and to take a life at that kind of proximity. And I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Magnifice Vice. That's really good, too.
0: I can say having been to Miami numerous times mm-hmm. living in Florida, uh, man does an exceptional job of really, cre- like you said, the scale, like but, but really creating a sense of just how large of an area Miami is. Because mm-hmm. I mean, for those who've never been there, they might think that it's just this beachfront area where i will Mm -hmm. say that it is nearly as spread out as los angeles Uh it it is a massive massive city uh, uh, Mm -hmm. geographically speaking and man does an exceptional job of capturing that Mm -hmm. so um the next film this is interesting because we talk about the digital cameras and that were Mm -hmm. used in collateral and that were used in miami vice and I, i noticed them when i saw those movies in the theater but i didn't find it distracting That's Mm -hmm. not the case for 2009's Public Enemies. I remember my first viewing seeing this in the the theater and (laughs) finding sort of the dichotomy between the use of the digital cameras and the period piece film and not feeling like those two blended well together. And that really took me out of the film the first time that I watched it. And it was a few years later that I finally revisited it. And for some reason, watching it on my flat screen at home, uh, I had sort of a different perception of the film and the digital. Maybe, maybe it's by this point I was used to seeing that a lot more. Right. But it was a film that I really appreciated its, its authenticity to the period, and it just mm-hmm. felt very, very real and the world felt very lived in. But I do remember my first viewing being drastically distracted by the use of the digital cameras.
1: Yeah, I was as well. I think you're right. This is, again, what I was getting at about him always being a little bit ahead of himself or ahead of everyone else. Um, I do think, like, you know, a few years later, we all got so used to seeing stuff shot j- digitally that it wasn't quite as as jarring. But I, I did think, you know, I thought it was like an interesting idea to shoot a period piece with the immediacy of something like Miami vice. Um, and I agree for me, it didn't really work. Um, certainly on first viewing, it didn't work at all. And I have warmed up to it a little bit more. Like when I watch it now, the digital, I agree with you, the digital stuff doesn't really bother me the same way, but I do think, yeah, I'm sure there's an exception to this that someone can point out. But for me, I do think so far digital stuff for period pieces is just not as effective like it, it, it it's um that's the one area like i'm not somebody you know on this whole film versus digital divide i mean to me to me it's not a versus it's an end i mean it's like they both have their function they both it depends on the kind of movie you're making um and but i will say with period pieces like there was a there was a western that was directed i think it was directed by vincent d'onofrio that came out a year or two ago a couple of years ago that i wouldn't and saw and it was shot digitally and i just like I could not get into this movie and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized it was the digital photography was, it was just like, I couldn't buy the period with the digital photography. And in the case of public enemies, I had that problem a little bit the first time, which is ironic because like you say, in terms of period detail, the movie is like meticulous. I mean, in terms of everything that's actually happening in front of the camera, it's got that standard Michael Mann, uh, thoroughness to it and detail, but it just, the digital thing. Yeah. I never got around it. And I still would say like, you know, I watched it again this week and I still just it's it's one I just I like it's sort of the last of the Mohicans thing again for me. Like it feels a little bit weirdly old fashioned and not just because it's a period piece, but just the story doesn't feel as like it's just not burning the way that like a Michael Mann movie burns for me. It just kind of is a little too traditional or something. And and like, like the character, it doesn't have for me that. And again, you know, he's doing a, something based on true story. So to a certain extent you're limited by that if you're trying to remain faithful, but like, it just doesn't like the, the Johnny Depp and Christian Bale characters in that movie do not have the obsessive quality that like, to me, great Michael Mann, uh, protagonists have like the, the best comparison I can make is like watching public enemies to me with, you know, thinking about Michael Mann. It's like when I saw hard target, the John Woo, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, <laughs> like I like that movie You know, it's a good Van Damme movie and it's a good like action movie, but it's not like the greatest John Woo movie. It doesn't have, again, like the obsessiveness that his heroes usually have. And I kind of feel that way about Public Enemies. It's just a movie that always kind of falls flat for me. I wish it didn't, but I've kind of given it enough tries over the years now to know that it's just one that uh, I don't respond to.
0: So that brings us to the last film on the list, which is... It doesn't seem like it was six years ago when this movie came out. I feel, Mm -hmm. for some reason, it feels like it just came out a couple years ago. Yeah. But it's never talked about. It's Mm -hmm. never brought up in the discussions. Well, if it is, it's because of uh, a $70 million budget and a $19 million (laughs) box office take. So Mm -hmm. before I ask you what went wrong with this film, uh, 2015's Black Hat, I'll ask you your thoughts on the movie.
1: Uh, Well... I will admit the first time I saw it, I liked it a lot, but I didn't entirely understand it. I felt a little bit left behind by by it. And I think that maybe I wasn't alone. And that's why when you say it had the $70 million budget and whatever the gross was, um, I think, again, maybe he was a little bit ahead of his time because I watched it again this morning and loved it. And I feel like maybe in those six years, we've all become a lot more savvy about, hacking and you know what with like what with the stuff that's been going on that went on with Russia over the last several years and all that kind of kind of thing um, I was watching it this morning and I was trying to figure out why it confused me the first time because it felt to me this time like it just moved like a rocket was totally clear was totally involving uh, was absolutely fascinating in its depiction of kind of cyber warfare and how it connects to actual physical Warfare and everything—I thought it was just great. I just loved it watching it this morning. I mean, like, like I, when I watched it again this morning, I was kind of like, "This is up there for me with a lot of my favorite Michael Mann movies." Um, but again, maybe he, uh, maybe he assumed when he made it uh, that the audience was as smart as he was about this stuff, and they weren't. I know I wasn't, uh, and it just kind of left people behind i don't know because i because watching it now i mean i think it's a really terrific action movie and very entertaining and uh also by the way a movie that recycles dialogue verbatim from the jericho miles so michael Mann likes to he doesn't leave anything unused <laughs> like if like if, if 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 he does if he feels like he made a point in something and not enough people saw it it comes back around because like there's the stuff that uh hemsworth says about being in prison and making the time his own, which again, going back to that Michael Mann idea of time, um, making the time his own and not the prisons and all that stuff. That monologue is—it's is, verbatim. Peter Strauss says the whole, the same whole thing in Jericho Mile. So it's, uh, it's, it's one of the fun things about when I doing these conversations with you is it gives me an excuse to kind of like watch a director's stuff again in order, and it's it, it's fun seeing those things pop up again and everything. But yeah, so I don't know, I don't know what you think of it, but but I. Um, I've really come around on black hat to be quite a fan of it. And I'm curious to see if it'll ever get, I mean, here's the thing it, it has, it has gotten a little bit rediscovered in the last few years by the kind of cinephile community. And part of that is that, uh, you know, I'm a friend of mine, Dan waters, who's the screenwriter who wrote heathers and some other, th- and, uh, Batman returns and some other things. And this is a guy, this is a guy who makes me and you look like people who don't watch movies. I mean, <laughs> this guy goes to the movie, he goes to the movies every day and sees everything and he stumbled across a couple of years ago on FX uh, a different cut of Black Hat <laughs> than the theatrical cut. There was like a director's cut of Black Hat that was just playing on FX, kind of un, uh, you know, unannounced. It was not the same as the theatrical cut. And Waters like went nuts over this. He was like, "This thing is great. Like this director's cut is great, whatever." And then like word kind of got around, and there's there's sort of I feel like among some like filmmakers and critics and stuff, there's starting to be a little bit of a reappraisal. Of black hat um and, and by the way that gets the whole other thing that that whole director's cut thing about michael mann which is a lot of times when you're talking about michael mann you don't even know what movie you're talking about when you're talking with people because he's one of these guys who obsessively recuts his own movies i have multiple copies of michael mann movies on blu-rays that are described as the director's definitive cut <laughs> and they're not the same version of the movie that played in the theaters like last of the mohicans isn't Heat isn't um And I think we've talked about this before with Oliver Stone about my my ambivalent feelings about all the director's cut stuff. But um, but that's a whole other tricky thing with with Man is you know and the Miami Vice that's out on video is different from the one that was theatrical. And I think there's that the Netflix version of Miami Vice is different from the Blu-ray. It's it's crazy. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I think Black Hat hopefully will kind of eventually. People will come around on it, but I don't know what yours your response was to it, or if you've see, given it another chance since I, it came out. It,
0: it needs a it needs a second viewing because I went into it my my sort of the standard I set for watching Black Hat was that I know how exceptional of a filmmaker Michael Mann is, and so I'm gonna I I know I'm gonna enjoy this film just on a technical level, and I did I did, mm-hmm. but I really. I, I, I kind of will mirror your first viewing of the film where a lot of the jargon, a lot of the dialogue, and a lot of it was just kind of going over my head. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's earned a rewatch for me, uh, like, like every Michael Mann film. Um, I, I it's hard to decide. Do I watch LA Takedown tonight? Do I watch <laughs> Ali again? Or do I watch Black Hat again? I'm going to watch one of those three tonight. And if, uh, uh pro- if I'll be honest, it's probably LA Takedown because I haven't yeah. seen it.
1: Well, that one you got to see. Yeah. I mean, I think Ali is probably for me the least of the uh, the, the, the least important. But yeah, you got You got to see Ali takedown. It's just you'll just you're going to be no matter what, you're going to find it fascinating. I guarantee you. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Well, Jim, I once again want to thank you for for taking some time out of your schedule to to kind of chat movies with me and specifically this in this case Michael Mann films. So if people would like to follow you on social media or keep up with uh, your writing, how how can they do that?
1: Uh they can either go to jimhempilfilms.com or on Twitter I'm at Jimmy Hemphill, and those are those are probably the best two ways to keep up with everything
0: awesome well we're gonna do another one of these uh series sometime soon and uh just a couple names to to kick out to you that we haven't done yet so uh obviously i'm thinking eastwood nolan i mean we gotta we gotta think about a couple of these ones
1: mm-hmm. so yeah well, eastwood nolan I'm, I'm definitely game for they're both two of my faves for sure
0: perfect perfect well thank you again for being on the show jim i really really appreciate it
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.